Okay, I assume that that means with the railroad clock that it's time to go, and you guys are ready. Good. And everyone, uh, the lights look good and all of that, we hope. It's good. Okay, good. So here we are. Before I get started, um, the cliffside email is going to be changing. It's a cost-saving uh, measure, and um, we don't know what it is yet. But what, those of you who use the cliffside, I'm sorry, um, cliffside office at Alaska.net, that one will be going away because, uh, like I said, we can no longer afford to run that website. We'll change it to one that we can afford, and so. It'll be Cliffside Office. I think it'll be at Gmail. So it'll be similar, but I'll make sure everybody knows when it comes. <clears throat> I got a couple of letters re recently, and, and people have talked to me about this uh, quite a bit, uh, with this pressure that's coming from COVID, especially in Europe. If you look at what's going on in Europe, Belgium and Poland, uh, Italy, Spain, France, Germany, just six countries had almost 3,500 deaths reported, which is 1,500 more almost... Uh, 1,700 more than the United States. So Europe, just with five, six countries, and the geographical areas I've pointed out before is, is equal, but the, that's just six countries. So uh, things in Europe are going to be difficult, and they're going to get a lot of pressure economically. And that economic pressure is, uh, for, is something that we as Christians should notice because that is a issue that's going to be critical as we go down the home stretch. And I do believe we're in the home stretch, as you know. Okay, November the 29th, 2020, lecture discussion number 122 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, uh, with Job thrown in a little bit, not so much today. In my usual attempts to provide uh, continuity, which doesn't occur, it seldom occurs actually, it, okay, it never occurs, continuity, we, we will mostly begin where we left off at lecture Number 123. Wait a minute, that makes no sense. Am I 122 or 123 today? 122. Okay, so we're going to leave off. Okay, we're going to. I actually wrote it right. I read it wrong. We're going to begin where we left off in this lecture, which is the two advents of Moses. That's where we quit last week. I hope you remember. If you don't, it's okay. Two advents of Moses means that he comes twice. Uh, let me put these down somewhere. Uh, the noise you hear in the background is the fire. Isn't that cool? Well, that's kind of cool, but that's how we heat in Alaska. Yeah, well, it's, it's a wood stove, obviously, and uh, uh, that keeps that's way. Uh, uh, Terithithi's back there with three blankets, a flannel shirt, and a coat on her lap, so in case you're on. So the two advents of the two times of Moses might be just as uh, uh, as well put, I hope. And, and as is overwhelmingly obvious, Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is going to come and die. Because Deuteronomy 18.15 says that he is a type of Christ. So he is going to come and die. So that Israel then can do what? It actually makes it quite clear so that Israel can enter into the promised land. Moses must die so Israel can enter into the promise. And then Moses would return. Deuteronomy 18.15 again. That's the pattern of Christ and so that's the pattern of Moses. We should put them all together every time. right? Moses is without dispute the foremost type uh, portrait of Christ that there is in Scripture. There is no controversy about that. There's hundreds of things that he does that are Christ uh, typifying. Deuteronomy 18.15 is unequivocal. Deuteronomy 18.15 doesn't stutter. 
Moses is to be evaluated so that mankind, that's the Gentiles and the nation of Israel, can identify the I am of Exodus 3.14. So when he comes, we'll know it's him because we have looked at Moses and we'll know that the 3.14 I am that I am lines up with Moses and therefore that is the uh, Messiah, that is the God-man. So when the I am that I am adds to himself humanity, now that's the solution that was the great controversy, not controversy, that is the great mystery of Timothy, the mystery of godliness. When he adds humanity, humanity, sorry, we're going to know him, even though we are sheep. That's mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back, to, to quote the great Bill Fast. I shouldn't use his name, I guess, but I don't think he minds. He's hiding somewhere out in Willow. Uh, Bill the Fast. Mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back, as I've said many times. That is not complimentary. Uh, The sheep sheep metaphor, it is not. But it tells you, okay, even us, even us little sheep can figure out who Christ is, who he truly is, by looking at Deuteronomy 18.15, the life of Moses, and finding this fantastic interweaving, this feathering of the two. And again, there is none like Moses in the Bible. So we sheep, us little mucus dingleberry things, we can recognize who the great shepherd is by studying Moses. As God, the I am that I am, has placed into Moses this template of Christ, which was established before the foundations of creation, the institution of time being a foundational component. As you know, that's Revelation 13, 13. So before he institutes time, he puts together this template of Christ that we can find with Moses. I'm repeating myself, but I'm trying to get it in. And since we know definitively that Christ also has two advents, two comings, prophet and king, he came first to save the lost through his blood, his death, right? Blood, death. He returns to end the wicked ones, still to save. purpose of the tribulation is to save, is salvation, to end the wicked ones, to turn the stiff-necked people, Israel, towards the belief in Christ. But he returns to end the wicked, wicked ones, to restore Israel into a nation of priests, finally to heal the Gentile nations and to rule from his throne in Jerusalem. So he's got two parts to him, that we see right now he's in the high priest part, and that's the third. But we see the two. Okay, so it must be logically so that Moses would have also these two advents, a coming, a death. We know the death is Deuteronomy 34, 7, or 5 through 7. Um, that's going to be the prophet stage. He identifies it, 1815. This is the prophet stage. Study my prophet stage. Because you will then, as a sheep, blah, blah, blah. I keep repeating, blah, 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 I should have said. Uh, putting the two together is our plan what we are assigned to do so he has a death stage really quick many out there you'll read them I have lots of books these are not even the lovely Lori has put some of my books in here to make it look better Uh, but I have books everywhere so I buy as many commentators who disagree with me as I can I've always done it that way I want to know what they think it's important to me. Uh, they never change my mind. Well, sometimes that's not true. I, sometimes they have. Yes, sir. So those are 
Ordinary expense. Those are what? Ordinary expense. I couldn't understand you through the mask. Ordinary spuds. Ordinary spuds. Potatoes. Oh, commentators. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. I got it. Uh, ordinary. Ordinary potatoes. This one yeah. is what uh, Dave is saying. That that's uh, an old joke that you have to be in your sixties to even know. <laughs> anyway, Moses is going to come. He's going to have a death, and be through that death that allows Israel to go to the promise, and. And you're going to find all kinds of views on this. Just the name of this quick one. Many divide Moses and Aaron or Aaron and Moses, whichever way you want to put it, as the prophet and the high priest offices of Christ. And that certainly has merit. So in other words, Moses has a division to him and a combining of him and Aaron. And naturally, I'm somewhat compliant about all of that stuff. Malleable. I'm I'm known, aren't I, for my malleability, (laughs) as everybody knows. And the same many who put Moses and the high priest Aaron together, the prophet and the high priest, into the positions of Aaron and Moses, and I probably inverted them, those same many proposed that the second coming of Moses was at Matthew 17. So, Matthew says, so first coming of Moses... Well, we'll get into that here in a minute. But the second coming is Matthew 17, which you know as the Transfiguration. And again, uh, that's a very common position, probably the overwhelming common position. And me being easy to get along with and everybody likes me, uh, I disagree with them. The same many. There's many and there's same many show up all the time. In other words, the Matthew 17 appearance of Moses and Elijah, in my opinion, is not the second coming of Moses, nor for Elijah and Elisha. Elijah has a second coming as well, but it is not at Matthew 17, nor is Moses at Matthew 17. So, when is the second coming of Elijah? When is the second coming of Moses? And you might also be asking, what does Elisha have to do with Elijah? And that's an excellent question. I wish I had thought of it. Obviously, Moses is to Aaron as Elijah is to Elisha. So it's almost an equation. I have Aaron. And I have a tendency to put Aaron before Moses. I won't do it this time because I'm alphabetical. So I have Moses, Aaron, and then I have Elijah, and Elisha. So I'm saying that that's an equation. Elijah and Elisha have a combining. Moses and Aaron do also. has nothing to do with Matthew 17 with regard to the second coming of either one. So, to repeat it, Moses and Aaron comprise, comprise a totality. And so does Elijah and Elisha. And note that the death of the prophet Moses must, I can't can't repeat this enough, he's got to die because his death is necessary for the entry into the promised life of Israel. And the death of Elisha, the body of Elisha, is touched and salvation from death results. It's the final miracle of Elisha who had a double portion. 
So the body of Moses and the body of Elisha should and must be studied together with the body of Adam and the body of Christ. We have all of these bodies to deal with, and I wish we had time today to do that, but we never have time today. Have you ever noticed? I always say we wish we had time today, and we never have it. Never. Okay, if Christ has two comings, two advents, a first coming and a return with a death in the interval, then, of course, Moses will be the same, right? And he is. And if the same many who argue about the transfiguration in Matthew 17 are incorrect, and I happen to be the one that's right, duh. Matthew 17 is not the return of Moses. So when again is the return of Moses? And what does the return of Moses have to do with Jude 9 and Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 7? You see, the transfiguration is the revealing of Christ as the light of life, Matthew 17. That's what he's doing. He takes them up a mountain. Moses and Elijah are there, and Christ opens himself up, and you get to see something that is in him. And what we see in him is the light of life, Genesis 1, 3. That's what he's doing. He is showing you that he is the primeval, not prime evil, but primeval, first, primacy, prime. He is the first light of all light that brings forth abundant life. So he is the light of life. And Moses and Elijah, he says that at 812, uh, John, as you know, Moses and Elijah are present to provide testimony. Think of it as, again, another judicial system or judicial uh, event. They provide testimony as to the truth of who Christ is. He is that light that strikes the earth in Genesis 1-3. And they're saying, we are testifying. We are the two witnesses that will testify that that's true. They are testers. They identify Jesus Christ as the light that struck the darkness. The earth was without form and void, covered entirely in water. You know, that's tohu vavahu, which means divine judgment. So it's covered in divine judgment. Uh, Again, we've been over that hundreds of times. Why is it... In divine judgment, what divine judgment has occurred? Who could have caused that divine judgment to be rendered? What is the timeline? All of that stuff we have done hundreds of times and will continue to do it because of its importance. The earth was without form and void, covered entirely in water. The first worldwide flood... So the second worldwide flood, as you know, being the nomadic flood. Anyway, the light of life struck the dark formless void. It's absolute darkness. There's not a single photon of light. And the light of life brought forth life. Now, I have a tendency to say light and light and light because it's easier. Life is harder for me to say. The light of life brought forth life. It created life. Primable living light is not particle light. Make sure you understand the distinction. Moses and Elijah are called on then, uh, uh, called upon at Matthew 17 to say this is true, to testify of it, to announce that it was true, to be witnesses if you prefer. It's two that attest because they witnessed it. And there people go, what do you mean? What do you mean they witnessed it? How would that be possible for Moses and Elijah to provide what essentially requires eyewitness testimonials? It's required that Moses and Elijah then have access to that information, not through hearsay, but directly, physical access. And, and, 
and this we know, there were witnesses to Genesis 1-3. Uh, Job 38-7. All the sons of God shouted for joy. Let me put that on the board. There's a lot of controversy from those same many that disagree with me. Job 38-7. Again, the, the timeline is so critical. Figuring out how the order, the sequence, uh, the anatomy, whatever phrase you'd like to have, understanding that it's really critically important. Uh, I can't say that enough. The, the sons of God in, in Job 38.7, it's always angels. That's why Genesis 6 is clearly angels. The sons of God, that phrase always is angels. And those sons of God are, in this case, Job 38.7, not all sons of God, just as Genesis 6 is not all sons of God. This is a bookend, if you will, to Genesis 6. The sons of God at Job 38.7 are unfallen. The sons of God at Genesis 6 are fallen. The sons of God at Job 38.7, the unfallen angels, all of them shouted for joy when God responded to this divine judgment darkness. That's what they're doing. They're, they're thrilled that it's happening. All of them shouted for joy. That's what is going on again in my opinion. I think it's obvious. So I'll try to make the case. The darkness was not ended, however, was it? The darkness was reduced by half. The light was separated from the darkness. We had half darkness and half light. Nonetheless, the unfallen angels shouted for joy to get any reduction in darkness at all. They got half of it. Also, the countdown clock was started. The sun and the moon, the 7,000 years was started. That, that was particularly important because it gave them a timeline as to how long this was going to go. Where did it start? Where did the darkness start? It clearly started in the angelic realm. And this is why when they see God respond, and that is a humanistic inside of time, even an angelic perspective, and it isn't possible because God is timeless. There's my disclaimer. When they saw this darkness reduced, it was a response from God, and they shouted for joy. And I asked last Sunday, I hope I asked last Sunday, you can tell me if I did ask last Sunday, uh, why was the darkness not completely eradicated? Did I ask that? Okay, why was it not ended? It's a critical question. And I, I will say to you, I hope I said last week, well, hopefully I'm doing a little bit of review, the answer is in Psalm 10.1. Uh, also 2 Peter 3.8. That's why we covered Psalm 10.1. What does it say there? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why does God stand back? Away off afar off. Why does he do that? Why do you hide in times of trouble? That is the key question of Psalm 10.1. And remember the response to all of that, Psalm 10.6, for example, the wicked do not believe they're going to have any adversity. They're not going to be accountable. They're not going to be judged. God will not do it because he cannot do it is the lie of Satan. And Psalm 10.1 asks that question. So you have both positions there. Why do you stand afar off? Well, he's standing afar off because the wicked believes something. Why do they believe it? In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. That's an incredible verse. Uh, 
and takes a great deal of thought. Immediately, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 requires that the words all and repentance be defined accurately. If you don't have a correct understanding of what all there means and what repentance, all should come to repentance. Who is within the all is my question to you. How many all is in all? From what must all repent? Exactly, specifically, most of the same many who disagree with me are rapid to define the all as restricted. They say all is not all, just some of the all, a few of the all, if you will. But what if all actually means all? I am generally, if not consistently, on the side that defines all as all. It just seems logic to do so. I find it appealing. But nobody, not very many agree with that. Let's ask it this way. Who's in jeopardy of perishing? Obviously, those who fell with Satan are in jeopardy of perishing. Would you agree? What's the question then? How long were they in jeopardy of perishing? Did they perish? How many of them perished? So obviously, those who fell with Satan have to be in the definition of all. And also those who reject the saving blood atonement of Jesus Christ. They have to be in the all. And he wishes that all would come to repentance. Repentance in what? So we have the angelic and the human. Matthew 25, 41, right? Angels and human are going to be cast into the everlasting fire. Terry asked last week, why is it everlasting? And... uh, I, I, I'm, oh, let me get to that in a minute. But they're going to be cast into the everlasting lake of fire that was prepared for the fallen angels. We've done this before. When did he prepare it? I'll tell you again that it happened at Genesis 3.15. I believe. That's the second death, as you know, of Revelation 20.14 and 15, where the angels are cast in there, and obviously they did not come into repentance, so they're cast in there. They choose to go there, and humanity that has rejected the blood of Christ willingly is also cast in there, but it was prepared for them. That is God saying that he made that for them. Why did he do it that way? Why didn't he say, I made it for the angels and humanity that that reject me? He didn't. He prepared it for the fallen angels. Okay, what is the specific repentance? What do you think? You can answer. There's only two of you. The specific repentance I submit is belief. John 11:25. He asked, "Do you believe this? What is the this there? What is the this? Christ is the life and the resurrection?" He says, "Do you believe this?" John 8:24. Therefore I say to you, you will die in your sin, perish in your sin, for if you do not believe, I am. And the I am is the Exodus 3.14, the I am that I am. Again, back to Moses and Elijah, Matthew 17, what they're testifying of. You will die in your sins, for if you do not believe I am that I am, you will die in your sins. That's what he says in John 8.24. And look at the, uh, look at the believe, believe. Do you believe this? Clearly, it's critical to repent of one's unbelief as to the truth of Christ. Do you believe that he is the I am that I am? Do you believe that he is the Genesis 1-3 light of life? Do you believe that he is the resurrection? Do you believe God or do you not believe God? It really comes down to that dichotomy. 
John 8.23 sets the table for John 8.24, as we should anticipate, right? This is before he says, you must believe I am that I am, or you will perish in your sins. Before that, he said to them, you are from beneath. This is Christ saying this. I, Christ says, am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He is the I am from above. The I am that is obviously not of the world. What is the world? It is a created entity. Everything on it is created. Everything that it is within is created. All of it is created and he is not created. And he's saying so. I am from above the creation. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Do you believe me? Yes or no question, isn't it? The I am that I am is not created. Again, think of what Moses and Elijah are testifying of at Matthew 17. We and the angels are of the creation. Christ is the unmade one, unmade one, therefore, therefore destroying the question of who made Christ, who made God is the same question. God is not made. Uh, Edgar Andrews' wonderful book, Who Made God? I, we used to hand those away as much as we could. They're fantastic. I give him tremendous credit for uh, taking this on. But God is not made. God cannot be made. Made does not apply to Christ never can apply to Christ. It's a nonsensical question. It's like asking, what does the number seven taste like or smell like? Now, listen, I'm aware of olfactory disorders, but I'm trying to make the point. Who made God is nonsense. It can't, it is, it is incongruent. Okay, anyway, moving along. I agree that we're moving along. I also agree that we're at a pace that's difficult uh, to distinguish from a dead full stop. I got a wonderful letter from a lady, Kelly. Uh, you might remember her. She brought me Worcestershire sauce from, uh, I believe, from the Carolinas. Uh, and she wanted to tell me that she was having difficulty making sense of my discursive style. And I wrote her back and saying, you are not to blame. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> don't, don't feel bad. It is what we decided to do many, many years ago because we we thought, hey, no one's doing it like this. Well, there's a reason no one's doing it. <laughs> but anyway, it's not Kelly's fault. Kelly was such a, a wonderful lady when she came here and still is, I'm sure. Ah, as I've introduced recently and often in the past, belief and unbelief are decisions of the will. You must have will to believe. You must have will to not believe. Those are willful, intentional acts of the mind, the soul, the spirit, whichever you prefer. Hebrews 3.12 Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That's what it says. It's calling an evil heart of unbelief. It's putting it together saying that unbelief is an evil heart. <sighs> Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief which results in departing from the living God. And if you're departing from the living God, what are you? You are now dead. If you're not with the living God, you're with the dead. As he defines living and as he defines death, Again, like a fire. 
uh, and you are rejecting the uh, the living God, and that is evil. Why would you reject the living God? And why is rejecting the living God evil? Those are theological questions of great value. Hebrews three fifteen through nineteen combines refusing to hear the calling voice of Christ uh, with the hardening of the heart in rebellion. So if you refuse to hear Christ, you are hardening your heart in rebellion. Thank Pharaoh, Exodus. Uh, And it also says if you harden your heart in rebellion, then you are entering into death and sin and disobedience and not going into the promise of salvation. And you're doing all of that because of unbelief. Which is why God hides. Which is why He waits. Waiting is time. What is hiding? We know that when He waits, He's adding time. What is hiding? He's obviously doing it because of Second Peter 3.8. He's long-suffering. He wishes that none should perish. So He waits and He hides. That's what He's doing. Willing that none should perish in unbelief. So what is hiding? What's the purpose of hiding? How does that help us? Why doesn't he just come out into the open? Obviously, he does not force us to believe him. Now that will come. But right now, he does not force us to believe him. Why not? Because if he did, existence and will are unified. If existence and will were not unified, are not fused together, then the rationale that supports the answer to Psalm 10.1 just evaporates. That might not make sense, but it will. In other words, if God has not, give, has not given existence and will to Angie... Blah, 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 blah. Who's Angie? Angie, if you're out there, please tell me who you are. If God has not given existence and will to angels and mankind at a level that enables all, both angels and mankind, to choose the evil of unbelief, then he would not hide. Does that make sense? Because he has given us existence and will, he hides. And he waits. If he did not give us existence and will, then he would not hide and he would not wait. There would be no rationale. So waiting and hiding proves that we have existence and will, true existence. God is afar off. He waits. He hides himself because he's the living God, the God of the living. He says so. I am the God of the living, which means you have eternal life. You have real life. You don't have fake life, which is the lie of Satan, correct? He hides himself because he's the living God, the God who gives true life. Which is why he reduced the darkness to one half. Do you see how I put all of those together? All of those fit together. Cause and effect. Newton. Because he has given us true life, living existence... That's a redundancy. Existence and will, it's another redundancy. But because he has done that, he hides and he waits. And he also reduces the darkness to just half the darkness, but he didn't get rid of all the darkness, did he? 
So why didn't he get rid of all the darkness? Just get rid of it. Because he has given us existence. Where does existence come from? What is existence made out of? It's made out of him. He's the, the living God. If you're living, it's because he is the living God. And it has to be a gift, doesn't it? And that's why the existence, uh, I'm sorry, that's why the lake of fire is everlasting because it is for everlasting beings. They're everlasting beings because they have true existence, not fake existence. There's no such thing as fake existence as a contradiction in terms. So I have had a multiplicity of redundancies and contradictions in term, and hopefully somebody is following along. Their everlasting and eternal beings are a necessary condition of an everlasting lake of fire. The everlasting lake of fire is everlasting because the beings are everlasting. What's the difference? Again, it's destiny, it's destination, it's the willful choice, it's belief or unbelief. That is what is the demarcation. But both, but the restoration of all things, the eighth day, if you will, is endless. That's eternal life, as God says. Eternal death is also endless. It has to be because existence is real. And that was kind of, sort of, Tarithathi's question last Sunday. Hi, Daniel. Yes, I read stuff. I do. I, yeah, I read all the comments and I delete the ones that call me an idiot. So you never see those. Have you noticed? <laughs> They're out there. My gosh. And this is, again, Christ hides. It's why he hides, because it goes back to the issue of existence, which is the lie of Satan, 28:16 Ezekiel, the abundance of your traffic, going from angel to angel, saying, you do not have life. You have something that replicates, that is a false life, and you are fooled. God is lying about life. The other day I was asked about the leper of Mark 1, 40-45. Why did Christ, he's omniscient God in the flesh, right? Instruct the cleansed leper to say nothing. He, he heals him of leprosy. And he says, okay, don't say anything. The guy goes out and says, tells everybody. Of course he wants his stuff back, right? He wants his house back. He wants his family back. But Christ said, don't tell anybody. Be secret. But he always, he knew, he's omniscient God, he's outside of time, that the leper would not do that. So why did he say it? He said it for us, so that we could understand something. Mark 1, 40 through 45 is the same subject. It's the same reason that God left one half of the darkness. It's Genesis 1, 4 through 5. He knew the leper would talk. Why did Christ weep then over the leper? Because he does. He has compassion. Whenever God has compassion, you can always imagine that he is weeping there. That leper says, I believe that you can cure me of leprosy. How did the leper come to that conclusion? What did he know? Who did he see? He He looked at Christ. He said, if you're willing. So will. I believe and will. So he put it together. And you can figure out the rest of that. It's a wonderful thing to consider. But it, it fits right in to this issue that we're at today. And that's what I told the uh, young man that called me. Uh, I don't remember what day it was. I think Friday. <sighs> Let's look at the time. Not too bad. Where are we now? Yeah, can you hear me now, right? hope you can hear me. Do you, do you want to hear me? I'm not saying. Note that if you want to, that's what? 
Will. Will. Yeah, there we go. Want is will. We're here free will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not forcing any of you to listen to me. Uh, nor would I if I could. Well, maybe I might. <laughs> okay. Moses and Elijah, they're brought to the Mount of Transfiguration to provide attestation as to the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's why they're there. They're attesting. So it's attestation. That S in there. Why am I a terrible trumpet player? Because I've been cursed with this tongue that is... That never mind. But they're attesting to the true identity of Christ. He is the light of life. That's what they're saying at the transfiguration. He's revealing it to Peter, James, and John. But Moses and Elijah are there saying, we're the ones that know it's true. Think again, it's a court procedure. Uh, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses called to testify by the defense. God is defending himself. Against who? Against what? When did it start? Why is there this defense? Why does God defend himself? He defends himself for the same reason. He only takes half the darkness away. And he hides. All of that is wrapped into the same dynamic, if you want to think of it that way. Why would God defend himself? Why would he argue? He's arguing with you because of 2 Peter 3.8. He's pleading with you, isn't he? With us, you being a general term, and the angels as well. Why does he do that? He wills that none should perish. So back to Moses and Elijah. How do they know that it was the person of Jesus Christ who came to the photonless darkness? There's not one single photon in Genesis 1.1-1.4. There's not a photon there. And the primeval light is not photon-based light either. It's the light of life. So it is unseeable blackness. And you know, you have to know, even those of you with night vision goggles, you have to have some light to see what are the theological implications of that. Light is necessary or you can't see. And I've said, that, said before that the angels, because the earth was in an utter black darkness, not a single photon, they, what would they think? They couldn't find it. They had been there. Satan was the king of the mineral Eden. The angels had been there. It was a beautiful place. The evidence is, is that God is going to restore it almost identical to the way it was. He will add an organic element. He'll combine the two. But we'll see the new, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will look very much like the old uh, pre uh, uh the mineral earth, the satanic earth. And I again, the earth is in utter black darkness, unseeable. And what would the angels think? They couldn't find it. Would they look for it? Well, you can look, but you can't find it. You can't see it. And, it, and so they would naturally think, I believe, that God annihilated it. But he didn't. For the same reason he got rid of half the darkness, right? And so that's another reason they shout for joy at Job 38.7 because it is revealed to still be intact. And the unfallen angels go, it's still there. And they're incredibly joyful. The unfallen angels, not so much. 
the war then would restart. I'm, I'm of the position, again, the same many who go after me all the time. Well, they don't even know who I am, but they go after what I think. That same many does not believe that, that the war has a respite. I think the war does have a respite and it, it, there is a period of time where the earth is gone, or at least both sides think it is. There's nothing to fight over in a sense. And there's a respite. And then God, boom, there it is. So setting that aside for a second, how is it that Moses and Elijah are admissible? They are. Why doesn't the court disqualify them? They're admissible. They're eligible. Their testimony is heard. I referred to them as first person eyewitnesses. What up with that? Uh, a lot of people will will say seems like the emaciated. Look at this. I have to hold the shirt like this now. The emaciated, half-blind, balding. Every now and then I'll tip my head forward. It's really, and then I'll see it on. Oh gosh. <laughs> so I am the emaciated, half-blind, balding HTRP. Just be throwing stuff at the dry erase board. Because how could they be eyewitnesses? Well, they have to be admissible. Eyewitnesses are admissible. You can read the Bible and it'll tell you what witnesses must be. They have to be witnesses. They can't be third parties. They can't be someone who heard somebody who knew somebody who lived next door to a guy with a three-legged dog who was down the street from your second cousin who said so. Can't be that. Has to be somebody who saw it. Let's consider a few facts. Moses knew God face to face. It's Deuteronomy 34.10. None like Moses who knew God face to face. I can interchange God with who? With Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the face of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15-18. If you have one verse in the New Testament that you know, it's Colossians 1.15-18. Moses then saw Christ. Moses, of all men, was given the privilege to ascend and descend. Pretty much, I'll say it this way, on the, on the ladder of Jacob, Genesis 28. Moses got to go up and down the ladder, if you want to think of it that way. In other words, Moses is the one chosen by God to pass between the mountain of God and the earth. He was a mediator between God and Israel. Christ, of course, is the high priest mediator. We would expect this to feather together, right? So here's Moses. He gets to go between humanity and God. He knows God face to face of no one else. Keep in mind that Moses wrote Genesis 1, 3 through 4. How did he do that? And he did it as, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's God who did it through him. But and he wrote the Pentateuch, for goodness sakes. The first five books of the Bible. Moses carried the stone tablets. That he saw the finger of God form those stone, stone tablets. Moses had the rod in his hand. Did Moses get possession? How did he get possession of the stone tablets? He saw them created. How did he get them? God had to give them to him. You don't think they were just laying over there. He knew that the finger of God had written them. How did he know that? Did God just tell him? 
That's not admissible. He had to see it. And he's going up and down between humanity and the heavens, the mountain of God. Moses wrote that the finger of God was the instrument. So that tells me that he is an eyewitness to that event. Everyone will concede that. What about the primeval light hitting the earth in, in condemnation? Did he see, was Moses a witness? Or was he only told? How much of what Moses wrote down of the words and acts of God did Moses see? I'm going to say he saw it all. He didn't hear it. He saw it. Now, some things he heard, the voice of God. But all the activities, all of the events, all of the physical things that God did, Moses saw them all and recorded them. How smart was he? Now, you can make the case that he was supernaturally impacted by the Holy Spirit. I won't argue with that. But if he wasn't, read what he wrote. That is uh, is astonishing. To be a little bit more specific, did Moses see the creation week? Again, lots of eyewitnesses, millions of eyewitnesses. But God doesn't choose them. He chooses Moses to testify on his behalf. He's one of the witnesses. He's the one coming to court. Two-thirds of the angels saw the creation week and shouted for joy. And I hope... My position on that makes has some merit with you. But it's Moses and Elijah at the unveiling of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not Michael and it's not Gabriel or any other angels. It's not the cherubim. It's Moses and Elijah. When Christ opens up and shows you that he is the light of Genesis 1-3, that is Moses who is there saying he's the light of the Genesis 1-3 and Elijah. Moses, again, wrote Genesis 1, 3, and 4. He knows. How does he know? And ultimately, this issue consolidates into the question, did God show Moses the creation weak, and and therefore the formation of Adam, the fall of Adam, the trial of Adam, the protection, the garden, guarding of the tree of life, the, the driving out of the man and the woman? Did God show that, all of that to Moses? I say yes. I left out a bunch of essential components. Don't, don't. Don't write me. You can read between the lines. They're all in there somehow. Pause the tape. Go in slow motion. Or did Moses just hear about it from God? Do you see there's a difference? There's a distinction here that I think is critically important. I think it's incredibly valuable that Moses have some kind of of experience. Again, the admissible witness aspect is in my humbler of humblelessness opinion. That's crucial. Could the God who conceived and installed and began time have shown to Moses the creation sequence? Yes or no? Obviously he could. They'll call that the God of the gaps argument. I'm trying to propose that it also makes sense, the most sense. And then others will say to me, the some many, what about the inviolability of time, the arrow of time? Time is directional. It goes one way. I agree with that. Because it's created, it's initiated, it's begun. And there's a beginning to time. That means it's a function of consciousness that predates it, that is pre-existent, that is inside or outside of time. I won't fight, I won't give that up. 
So I'm going to tell you that there, yes, there is inviolability and time is directional. It goes one way. And is that not so then that the beloved HDRP uh, asserts that returning into time is being violated here? Because I'm going to say to you that returning into time is impossible. And, and they're going to say to me, okay, not so fat person, but still dumb. Reconcile that. You're trapped. You're hoisted by your own pettered Okay, petard. Wasn't he the uh, the somebody on Star Trek? No. Yeah, petard is not him. Okay, wondered to know. I knew that. I was just that was my attempt at being funny. I didn't write it. Okay, there are shouts right now from the internet. You can hear them. I can hear them. Uh, they're screaming confidently that I am in a conundrum. I have said that. Time is inviolable, but yet Moses saw the creation leap. Yes, sir. Simple proof of that. God took John. Oh, don't get ahead of me. Oh, oh my gosh. You have to stop. I blah, 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 blah. I am thrilled for you. You have a clock, I have to say that Dave is absolutely right. So what does Dave say? It's the very next word, just to prove it to you. Reconcile that uh, you are trapped by your own arguments. There is no escape. Shouts the vast internet audience confidently. The very next line is, I will defend with the Apostle John. Um, So don't be so confident. Apostle John was called up into heaven, wasn't he? Uh, He's gone up to the mountain of God, didn't he? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. He was shown the end. The very end he was shown. All of it. He saw it. All of it. Was Moses therefore shown the beginning? Because we know Genesis and Revelation. I got a beginning. I got an end. Genesis and Revelation are ridiculously. They're inseparable. They are poured one on top of the other. It would be logical that the process for John was the process for Moses. And therefore identical. Certainly the detail in Genesis and Revelation are exhaustively presented as if each one was recorded by someone who was a direct experiencer, an observer of it. Both of them are written in the same perspective. As to the issue of violating the arrow of time, there is a distinction, a significant difference between observation and interaction. There's one thing to be observing it and another thing to be inside of it. It is impossible, I'll say it again, in spite of all the stupid movies that we watch, it's impossible to transport from the present or future to the past. There really isn't a present, is there? There's only a future. In other words, the present, the only one in the present is Christ. He's the I am. That's why he's in the present. Nothing else. The rest of us are either will or were. We have no present. There is no time of present. You cannot measure the present. The present is is infinitely small. So it's impossible, though, to transport uh, from the future to the past. And, And doing so would impact the immutability of the past. And the past is immutable. It cannot be changed. Time travel backwards into time is impossible. Mathematics all by itself will disprove it. It's an incalculable number of debris. If you took anything, a rock, and moved it back 
into time. There's an incalculable number of debris that is going to be created by that. Mathematics alone renders it not an issue, not possible. However, all of time exists simultaneously for the I am that I am. Again, Moses and Elijah. This is the I am that I am. This is the primal light. That's what they're doing. For the timeless one, he's not subject to time and he's omniscient. God can observe all things in motionlessness, a motionless state. If he wants to do it, he can, he can look at them in motion if he wishes to do that. He has complete autonomy over time. So he can keep time. He can see it as a movement or he can see it as static. It's in stasis. It's he that sets all things into motion. It's his great advantage. How do you fight somebody who can stop time? So obviously Satan is not fighting him in the way we think. Back to the question of the six-year-old or the four-year-old, I can't remember. Does Satan Is Satan trying to kill God? No, he's not. Stupid people think like that. He is not stupid. And again, obviously, God can observe all things in stasis. And if Moses was allowed to observe the events of Genesis 1, now notice that, how I said that, if Moses was allowed to observe the events of Genesis 1, note that emphasis, okay, emphasis. Moses is not installed because he's observing. He is not entered, inserted into the past. He is observing it in a state of which God gives him. What would I do if I were Moses and I got to see the creation week? I would say, slow it down. I want to see everything you did. I want to see all the minutiae. I don't want it to go by fast. I want to watch this. Stop. TiVo, whatever it's called. And I'm sure he, 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 he's writing it down. He can't, he can't convert it into memory unless, again, he can. It can be a Holy Spirit impacted event. I won't say that it isn't, but I, I'm, I'm, as much as Moses gets to exercise his humanity, I think he did. It's, in a, Moses is given a frame of observation to repeat much as John the Apostle with respect to the book of Revelation. That way the past remains inviolated, or not violated, inviolable. And, and yes, I can hear the vast internet audience screaming, what about the photons? Because we have to deal with the photons. The photons from the past would be contacting the eyes of Moses, who is from the future. Information cannot be destroyed, as everyone knows. Therefore, the past would be altered because photons have hit Moses. And he shouldn't be there unless he should be there. And they would say to me, the same many, that mutability has occurred. Wave functions have collapsed, to which I respond, from where is the frame of reference? You're assuming a frame of reference that is what? A physical location. Uh. Or if you want to prefer it this way, uh, does omniscience account for information? And I say that it does. Um, omniscience is necessary for information because information cannot be destroyed. 
And those sounds you're hearing right now are people falling asleep all over the Cliffside Worldwide Congregation. So let's go to the big finish. We always have to have a big finish. Have you ever noticed I have to have a big finish? Do I ever have a big finish? Let's go with Elijah. What about Elijah? Why is Elijah a witness to the light of life being the person of Christ? The Genesis 1-3. Why is Elijah coming to witness? We know Moses probably had all of this because he wrote it. But did, what makes Elijah be the second witness, the inferior witness? But they're not. They're equal. Why is Elijah there? Why not just Moses? i got to have two. God says that. It's fundamental. Why is Elijah? Why not Enoch? Why not Aaron? It's just a name, too, that could have. But it's not. It's Moses and Elijah. To repeat, the light of life is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, and that's what they're saying. One of the many things they're saying there. Elijah is alongside of Moses. He's providing testimony as an equal. There's got to be a reason he's an equal. Why is he an equal? 2 Kings 2.1 Elijah is taken up into the whirlwind of God. Let me put that on the board. I'm doing this because I've looked at the time. Those are the two that you need to know the best. There's also others. 2 Kings 2.1 Elijah is taken up into the whirlwind of God and the mantle that he has falls back to the earth to Elisha. Oh, how interesting that is. Now Elisha has the mantle. So Elijah ascends and the mantle descends. Genesis 28, right? The mantle of Elijah, what did it do? It divides the water of the Jordan River, the Jordan. That which flows from Adam, Joshua 3.16, and the Jor, descender into death and judgment. Okay. And that he does that at 2 Kings 2.8, and it happens again at 2 Kings 2.14. Both Elisha and Elijah use the mantle to divide the Jordan River and cross it. That's the river of death and judgment descending from Adam. And obviously, whenever we see this ascension of Elijah and the descension of the mantle, that sends us to 28 uh, Genesis 12 through 15, right? That's the latter. The up and down, that's Proverbs 34, that's John 3. All of those things. More obvious is that Christ himself, Acts 1.9, he ascends, and what does he ascend to? When he goes up, where, where, where does he go into? He goes into the pillar of cloud. Uh, and the Holy Spirit then, of course, descends, Acts 1.5. Or 2.5, sorry. And so, or 2.4, sorry. So I have Holy Spirit 1.5.1.8 and 2.4. I hope I got that right. Of Acts. So I have Christ ascending and the Holy Spirit descending. So which one is the mantle the most like? The mantle comes is descending. Moses, I'm sorry, Elijah is ascending. Uh, Elijah is in this typology of Christ. It's amazing. Acts 1.8 specifies that when the Holy Spirit descends, Matthew 3.16, and, and remember the Holy Spirit is not a dove. It descends in the fashion of a dove. As the dove descends in the circular motion. When the Holy Spirit descends, the apostles would become witnesses for Christ. 
Okay? More witnesses. Obviously, God is defending himself in a courtroom, isn't he? That's the train telling me that five o'clock passenger is here. Please shut up. And these witnesses that he's now created again that see this, feel it, know it, they're going to testify of Christ. What are they going to testify of Christ about? They're not going to do that he's the primal life. They're not going to do that he's the I am that I am. Well, they are going to do that in some way. They're going to testify of his good godhood and they're going to testify of his resurrection. And there's your repeating, isn't it? The light of life and resurrection, John 11:25. The light of life and the resurrection, those two go together. Continuity of the soul and the resurrection of the body. The mantle of Elijah and the Holy Spirit are tied together. The mantle would be positioned as the symbol type of the Holy Spirit. For today, <coughs> let's just ask if the whirlwind of Elijah is the same pillar of cloud at Acts or Ezekiel 1.4. Let's go to Ezekiel 1.4 just for fun, just to see, is the emaciated, balding guy got a point? Finally a point. Let's just read Ezekiel 1.4. Then I looked and behold... A whirlwind was coming out of the north. Here's that whirlwind again. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. And from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And there, there, this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. It goes on to describe them. And over here, it says in 126, And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. That's clearly Christ. So the whirlwind is the pillar of cloud. Elijah goes up to the pillar of cloud. Christ and Elijah, and Job 38, 146, there's all kinds of... 40 verse 6 is all kinds of verses that will tell you the pillar of cloud and the whirlwind of Elijah is in fact the same. And Christ and Elijah both ascend in the whirlwind, the pillar of cloud. So what's the the obvious question? Now here comes the easiest question of the whole night, the big finish. Who else has ascended into the pillar of cloud besides Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, and Elijah? And why was Elijah chosen to do it? He doesn't seem that special. Elisha's got double portion. But it's Elijah who goes up, ascends like Christ ascends into the pillar of cloud like Christ goes into the pillar of cloud. So who else has done that? By that I mean what man other than Elijah has been in the pillar of cloud? If you raised your hand, and no one raised their hand here, which is really good. And you answered Moses. You get a cookie. Moses did it. Exodus 19:18 through 20. That's he went up into the pillar of cloud. Elijah went up into the pillar of cloud. And Christ went up into the pillar of cloud. Those are the three at Matthew 17. And that, of course, solves something. That is That solves... Revelation 11.4 and Zechariah which 
sure I get it right because I wrote it down, 4, 11 through 14. Those are the two olive trees. That proves that Elijah and Moses are the two olive trees because they are with Christ in the pillar of cloud and they're the only ones that have ever done it. So that solves that very difficult question. Next week, more of the same.